I hesitated whether I was going to do this, but in the end, I think I think it fits. I want to begin by telling you a story about something that I'm guessing absolutely nobody in this room cares about. And that's a great way to start a sermon, right? Um, trust me, it's both understandable and acceptable for you to not care about this topic. Please bear with me. I want to tell you a story about rap music in the year 1989. And again, yeah, no, nobody here cares. So, okay, that's fine. Um, please just bear with me. The, the 1980s was when rap music rose to both social and artistic prominence. And, and the latter half of the decade is what's known as rap's golden era. Um, one of the most commercially successful albums of this time period, or any time period before or since, is by a group of three very white Jewish young men uh, called the Beastie Boys. Their debut album, 1986's License to Ill, was the first rap album to go to number one on the Billboard charts. So it's not the first successful rap album, but it was the first like enormously successful rap album. However, in the subsequent years, rap underwent a series of stylistic and lyrical and sonic evolutions. And by two years later, 1988, the two most prominent voices in rap belonged to rap groups NWA and Public Enemy. You may have heard of these. They're very controversial. These acts urgently documented the frustrations of being black in America. Judicial inequality, gang violence, the AIDS and crack cocaine epidemics, police brutality, and a social system that continued and continues to marginalize and prejudice those millions of Americans with darker skin. Public Enemy frontman Chuck D captured the vital role of rap in 1988, when he had this quote, he said, "The art, rap is black America's CNN. That if you want to know what's going on in the African-American population, listen to rap music. It'll tell you. Delivering ugly truths about what it means to be young and black in America. Not always prescriptive, definitely descriptive. Um, saying this is what life is like if you're young, black, living in the city. All of this is to say that rappers like NWA, Chuck D of Public Enemy, names that you may or may not be familiar with, but that's okay. These names, by 1988, had made the goofy white boy party animal stylings of the three Jewish Caucasian Beastie Boys feel much more pointless and much more outdated. By 1988, nobody in rap cared very much that the Beasties hadn't released a follow-up to their enormously successful debut album. They just That's not what, where rap was at that point. It, nobody cared. But then... In 1989, the Beastie Boys did release their follow-up, which they called Paul's Boutique. And before long, it would be recognized as a masterpiece of not only the Beastie Boys discography, but of rap as a genre as a whole. I love that album. I love Paul's Boutique. It's one of my favorite rap albums. I say that with the requisite parental advisory warnings that come with me talking about a piece of secular art from the pulpit. You will not want to go and listen to these albums, any of them that I mentioned. Almost certainly, they're not appropriate for a Sunday drive with your mom or grandma. Um, there is bad language and stuff. And so that's my requisite warning for you. Please don't judge me, please. But I do enjoy Paul's Boutique quite a bit. So much so, in fact, that in 2012, I downloaded a free album called Paul's Boutique Reconstructed, which took all the songs that the Beastie Boys had used to, as samples in their album, and mixed them all up with the lyrics and made basically a, a whole new album, something that fascinated a longtime fan like myself. And so all of this is to say that Paul's Boutique unexpectedly cemented the Beastie Boys' legacy as legitimate hip-hop legends. That album cemented their status. 
And this remix album that I downloaded begins with a quote from a radio interview in 1989 that captures this unexpected legitimacy, where the radio personality says, word on the street from respected rappers from Eazy-E, I mentioned him, he was in NWA, to Public Enemy, to MC Hammer, is that these guys, the Beastie Boys, are the real deal indeed. That was the glowing endorsement. These these major rap voices in 1988 that I told you about early were somewhat unexpectedly validating and legitimizing an artist that nobody expected to release a legitimately great rap album in 1989. It's a lot of history that you don't care about. I'm sorry. But one more thing. When I first heard that quote, I was taken aback by something in particular. When the radio host began with respected artists from 1988... I expected to hear from Easy e of NWA and Chuck D of Public Enemy. That's where rap was at that time. But I was blown away by the inclusion of the third name, MC Hammer. I, probably none of you have heard a single bar from a single song of Public Enemy, NWA, Beastie Boys, and you're probably better off for it. That's fine. But you have almost certainly heard from MC Hammer, right? Anybody know what MC Hammer's one big hit was? Well, he had several big hits, but his biggest hit? You can't touch this. Uh, probably, uh, probably even Bill Galt could hum along. Yep, Bill knows it. If I played it right now, Bill will get up and he'd do his parachute pants dance. Um, everybody's heard you can't touch this. Um, it was released in 1990, a year after Paul's Boutique, and it's generally considered a low point for legitimate rap. If you are a rap artist in 1990, you didn't want anything to do with you can't touch this. You were all about these other names that I said. Those were the big names. MC Hammer was kind of a joke. He was just a pop act. He was an artist who used rap to make sales, not highlight the plight of African Americans as the calendar switched over into the 90s. But in 1989, he hadn't sold out yet, sold out yet, and he was still considered a legitimate rapper by the genre's tastemakers. MC Hammer's illegitimate sellout status continued to hound him, so much so that the follow-up to the album that You Can't Touch This was on was called Too Legit to Quit. Too legit. He's basically saying, you're all making fun of me, but I'm too legit. Too legit to quit, in fact, if you know the song. So all of this is a long-winded exploration of legitimacy. What makes a rap artist legitimate? Both the Beastie Boys and MC Hammer had been and often continue to be dismissed by hip-hop fans as illegitimate because of things like the Beastie Boys' skin color. Rap is a predominantly black genre. And they were white, so lots of people dismissed them. Or the, the vapid party nature of their lyrical content. Or their ability to outsell pretty much every one of their rap contemporaries. Those were all things that people made people view them as illegitimate. For the Beasties, it took confirmation from the reigning voices in rap for them to be accepted as legitimate. For MC Hammer, his legitimacy is borne out by the results. His songs are still heard in movie soundtracks and your nephew's wedding and you'll, you'll be hearing them in weddings for the next 100 years. You can't touch this. Um, longevity is sometimes the most obvious legitimacy. So, legitimacy is also at stake for our hero, Paul. Like that? There's Paul on MC Hammer's body. Again, it took me way too long to make that. Legitimacy is also at stake for our hero, Paul, in Acts 24. That's right. We're reading an entire chapter this morning. But don't worry. It doesn't mean it's a three-hour sermon. I promise. It's a courtroom scene between Paul's accusers and the apostle himself in the presence of the local Roman ruler of the day, Felix. The story circles around the question of legitimacy. Is the way of Jesus a legitimate belief system? Or should Rome 
seek to crush them in the same way the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem are seeking to crush them. Will Paul be the illegitimate Beastie Boys in 1988 or the legitimate artists of 1989? Will he be the legitimate MC Hammer of 1989 or the corny too legit to quit rapper of 1990? Where will Paul find his legitimacy? Let's read Acts 24 and find out. Actually, we're just going to read the first nine verses. Five days later, so this is after Paul has been transferred to Caesarea under the care of Felix. Five days later, the high priest Ananias went down to Caesarea with some of the elders and a lawyer named Tertullus, and they brought their charges against Paul before the governor. So you can tell how seriously the Sanhedrin takes persecuting Paul because the high priest marches 65 miles down the road, this older gentleman, to make sure that he's there. And they bring with them basically a star prosecuting attorney um, in Tertullus. Uh, So they really want to crush Paul. And Paul, he begins his address by buttering up Felix. Or, sorry, Tertullus begins his address by buttering up Felix. When Paul was called in, Tertullus presented his case before Felix. We have enjoyed a long period of peace under you, and your foresight has brought about reforms in this nation. Everywhere and in every way, most excellent Felix, we acknowledge this with profound gratitude. But in order not to weary you further, I would request that you be kind enough to hear us briefly. We have found this man to be trouble... um, Sorry, we have found this man to be a troublemaker, stirring up riots among the Jews all over the world. He is a ringleader of the Nazarene sect, and even tried to desecrate the temple. So we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to learn the truth about all these charges we are bringing against him. The Jews joined in the accusation, asserting that these things were true. All right. Notice how Tertullus attempts the same tactic that I attempt every week with you guys by saying, Allow me to briefly explain this to you. I always say, it's not going to be long. I just said, it's not going to be three hours. Don't worry. He's trying to butter up Felix to say, you won't have to listen long. Just let me plead my case and we'll get on with life. But there's a certain, there's a, there's a certain amount of irony to Tertullus's flattery of Felix. See, he says, we've enjoyed a long period of peace. You've enacted lots of great reforms. But that is not what the Jews of Judea thought of Felix. They did not consider Felix worthy of praise for his providence. Felix made a habit of brutally quashing any uprising against him, um, going so far as to arrange the assassination of the Jewish high high priest right in the temple. So you you can imagine how the Jews responded to that. If you assassinate their high priest in their holy place, they're not going to like that very much. Felix was as greedy as he was ruthless. He had once been a slave, and thanks to his brother, Pallas, who was a freed man, and who Pallas was the most one of the most trusted confidants of Emperor Cla- uh, Claudius. Because of Pallas, Felix rose in prominence as well, to the point where he is now in the position of power as a Roman ruler over Judea in Acts 24. One historian viciously summed up the rule of Felix as follows. He exercised the power of a king with the mind of a slave. It's pretty brutal. And this is the guy who Tertullus is claiming brought an enjoyable long period of peace. Well, not exactly. You can hear Luke stifle a derisive snort as he writes it. Just long period of peace, yeah, right? But for Tertullus, the flattery serves a purpose beyond merely sucking up. It also reminds everyone in the courtroom how the peace of Felix was obtained. Any kind of peace they had was only secured through crushing troublemakers, rabble-rousers, and peace disruptors. In other words, by crushing men like Paul, who they accuse in verse 5 of being a pest, 
who stirs up riots all over the civilized world, from Ephesus in the west to Jerusalem in the east. In saying, we enjoy a long peace under you, it's acknowledging with a wink that that peace was accomplished by crushing people like Paul. So Tertullus is, is saying to Felix, this is one of those troublemakers that you're going to want to get your thumb over top of. They also accuse Paul of being a ringleader for the Nazarenes, which is the only time in Scripture that Christians are called that, named after the town of Nazareth, which, which their Lord Jesus identified as his hometown. Um, it's kind of a derisive offhand, these Nazarenes. And the reason Tertullus calls them the Nazarenes rather than the way or the Christians as they are otherwise known is because he wanted to paint Paul and his colleagues as followers of a new religious sect, one which was not authorized or recognized by Rome. By calling them the Nazarenes, he's saying, you don't know who these people are, Felix. We do, and we don't trust them. They're not a legitimate offshoot of Judaism. They're a cult. And since you don't recognize them, you need to quash them. He's slyly attempting to delegitimize Paul and the Christians in the eyes of Felix. If Rome doesn't see the Christians as a legitimate religious order, like the Sadducees or the Pharisees, then Rome might take action against them. The legitimacy question is, for Paul, one of life or death. If Felix views them as legitimate, Paul will live, Christianity can continue to thrive and grow. If Felix sees them as illegitimate, illegitimate, Paul will be murdered, and likely all of his followers in the city will face persecution. So it's life or death stakes. The legitimacy of, of the way is at stake here. After that, Tertullus limply ends his speech by stating basically, you know, talk to the guy yourself and you'll see how guilty he is, which is just super lame. It's just bad rhetoric. But it means Paul's then given a chance to defend himself. But instead of reading it, instead of reading verses 10 to 21, I'm going to paraphrase Paul's counter-argument for you. So you can read it and follow along if you want. I'm not going to say anything that's not in Acts 24. But let's see how he attempts to legitimize himself his fellow Christians, and by extension, his Lord and Master Jesus Christ. So, Paul begins with a much more brief and truthful set of compliments aimed at the judge's chair of Felix. Basically, Paul says, thanks, you've been doing this a long time, so I'm happy to be able to defend myself, which is much better than the sort of airy, buttery praise that Tertullus gives. But after giving this introduction, Paul begins to expertly dismantle each and every single one of the unjust accusations made against him. You accuse me of causing trouble all over the empire, Paul says. Well, let's focus on Jerusalem, where I was beaten without cause. For the 12 days I was in Jerusalem, Paul says, I wasn't involved in even one public dispute, which is true. Normally, Paul would head to the synagogue and and have debates with people. He didn't do that this time because he didn't want to cause trouble for the Jerusalem church. He wanted to be on their good side so they would support the Gentile ministry, and he didn't want to cause trouble for them. So it's true that he never got into any public disputes when he was in Jerusalem. He continues, I gathered no crowds, I gave no public lectures, as much as that pained me, I really wanted to preach about Jesus. I never spoke up in the synagogues out of turn. I had certainly never provoked any riotous assembly of any of any kind of me or my like-minded believers against the temple. I started no riot against the temple. I started no riot against the Sanhedrin. I started no riot against Rome. I started no riot whatsoever of any kind. I am guilty of no such troublemaking behavior. If you don't believe me, I ask you to consult the evidence against me. Oh, wait, they have absolutely no proof or evidence whatsoever that I'm guilty of rabble-rousing or troublemaking or riotous behavior in any way. 
No proof whatsoever. There's no evidence. Isn't that interesting? And as for the claim that we Nazarenes are an illegitimate religious sect, let me tell you this. The only way that we Christ people are an illegitimate religious sect is if Rome has somehow, without me knowing about it, outlawed Judaism since we share the same foundation. We share the same foundation of obedience to the law and the prophets, and we share the same glorious hope, resurrection and judgment at the hands of the one true and holy God. Christianity, what you call, what they call the Nazarenes, is just an offshoot of Judaism. We have the same law. We worship the same God. It's just that we see hope in resurrection in Jesus, is what Paul's arguing. This faith in being raised up to face our Maker compels me to act at all times with a conscience free from guilt. God could not find me any guiltier of unrighteous living than these Sanhedrin folk who are accusing me today. Moreover, my conscience isn't just clean before God, my conscience is clean before mankind. God, who knows the hearts and minds of all people, my conscience is clear before him. And really, that's all that matters, right? If your conscience is clear before God, who cares what the people around you say? But, Paul says, my conscience is also clearer before my neighbors around me. Those who know me know the purity of my intentions, the discipline of my right living, the depth of my love for God, and the steadfastness of my faith. Everything I say to the people around me, I back it up with my own life. I am blameless. No one can find in me any earthly cause for imprisonment or exile. In my living, again, I am blameless before God and neighbor, knowing that God will one day judge me for my love of him and my love of the friends who support me and my love of you enemies who are trying to persecute me today. I am blameless. In fact, do you know, Felix, why I was in Jerusalem in the first place? For the first time in five years, do you know why I came back? The reason I came back wasn't just for a visit. It's because I brought back a sizable financial gift with me. And at that, by the way, Tertullus's ears perked up, as we'll see later. Sizable financial gift, you say. Interesting. But this gift was a gift for the poor. These Sanhedrin folks, they turn their noses up at the poor and the sick of Jerusalem. But I travel nearly 2,000 kilometers just to show those poor people mercy and to unite the Gentile Christians of Asia Minor to our Jewish Christian brothers and sisters in the holy city. What could unite us better than giving to the poor? That was why I came back to Jerusalem. How blameless is that? And I'm being punished for this? And when I brought those gifts to Jerusalem, I also brought offerings for me to make in the temple. And I was in the process of presenting those offerings when the Ephesian Jews mobbed me and beat me without cause. At the time, I was ceremonially, ceremonially pure, but that didn't matter to them. I'm sure they had some accusations to make against me then, and I'm sure they have some accusations to make against me now, but, and here he looks around the courtroom and swallows purposefully and says, it seems that those accusations aren't so worthwhile or justifiable as to require their actual presence at the trial where I'm being persecuted based on their pathetic accusations. Anybody who had an accusation against Paul, those Jews from Asia Minor, who had seen Paul in the temple and thought he had brought a a Gentile with him, none of them were there. They didn't even bother to make the trip. So what's this all about, Paul's thinking? If my accusers can't even face me, why am I being tried? As a Roman judge, Felix, I'm sure you're far too busy to deal with people who waste your time with unfounded accusations that they can't even bother to present in person. And at that, he turns to the people who did bother to to show up for this trial, the Sanhedrin. 
the actual accusers on this day, and he absolutely dismantles their own issues against him. The Sanhedrin couldn't come up with any actual allegations against Paul. There's nothing that they could find him guilty of, other than, hey, this guy, he brought up resurrection in our presence, and we don't like talking about resurrection because we don't believe in it. Well, actually, some of us believe in it. The Pharisees believe in it. But we Sadducees don't believe in it, and we don't like when he brings it up because it makes us fight, and we don't like to fight. Actually, we love to fight. So the, the most that they could accuse him of is believing in resurrection, which Felix A. would have no grounds to judge on. That's not his department. And B. couldn't have cared less to begin with. That's a, a theological matter for you Jewish people to settle for yourselves. Felix would never punish Paul for a theological discrepancy, especially because the Sanhedrin themselves can't resolve it amongst themselves. So their arguments against Paul hold absolutely no water. And so, having destroyed every, every accusation against him, Paul rests. He pleads his, he's pled his case, and he's at rest, and his accusers have nothing to say in return. They have no legal ground to stand on. So let's read Felix's response in verses 22 to 27. Then Felix, who was well acquainted with the way, that is the church, adjourned the proceedings. When Lysias the commander comes, he said, I will decide your case. He ordered the centurion to keep Paul under guard, but to give him some freedom and permit his friends to take care of his needs. Several days later, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was a Jew. He sent for Paul and listened to him as he spoke about faith in Christ Jesus. As Paul discoursed on righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix was afraid and said, That's enough for now. You may leave. When I find it convenient, I will send for you. At the same time, he was hoping that Paul would offer him a bribe, so he sent for him frequently and talked with him. When two years had passed, two years, Felix was succeeded by Porcius Festus, but because Felix wanted to grant a favor to the Jews, he left Paul in prison. Yet another miscarriage of justice. Felix knows a lot about the way, somehow. We, we don't really know how he knows about Jesus and Jesus' followers. And he can see pretty quickly that Paul's accusers have no legal legs to stand on. Felix knows the situation. He knows that there's, there's no cause for them to, to take Paul to court. However, at this point in Roman history, Felix was on thin ice. Remember, I said he rose to prominence because of his brother, Pallas, who was a confidant of, of, of the Caesar at the time. Well, that Caesar, Claudius, was gone, and a new Caesar, Nero, was in. And Nero deposed Pallas, which meant that, as a trickle-down effect, our friend Felix was on thin ice himself. He didn't have his brother to, to have his back. So Felix needed to play nice with the Jews of Judea, whom he ruled over. And so, despite knowing Paul's innocence and despite the injustice of it, Felix refuses to give the Sanhedrin reason to be further upset with him. He refuses to give the Sanhedrin reason to be mad at him. So he keeps Paul in prison for another two years just to placate the Jews. Although he is offered relative freedom when it comes to visitation because he's a Roman citizen who has not been found guilty, so he was allowed, he was allowed visits. Felix made use of Paul's convenient incarceration, satisfying his curiosity by grilling Paul repeatedly until he became afraid of the consequences of Paul's teachings regarding personal accountability for sin. Once they got personal, Felix was like, okay, that's enough. I don't, I don't want to hear about how I may have to face God in judgment. So you go back to your prison cell. I'll call you when it's convenient. Um, we'll discuss more about that interaction next week. There's more I want to say that, that didn't fit in here. Um, Felix is a pretty fascinating guy. But for now, for the next two years, Paul sat in prison unjustly, 
a puppet to a man who summoned him repeatedly only because, wait, didn't he say something about a large collection of money? That's interesting to me. So I'll keep him close by, and maybe if I keep summoning him, maybe he'll offer me some of that large pot of money as a bribe to let him go. So even though Paul's locked up for less than legitimate reasons, um, Felix sees it as a legitimate reason to get wealthy. And there's that word legitimate again. Many people believe that one of the main purposes for Luke to write his twofold uh, manifesto on the life of Jesus and the early life of the church is that he was attempting to demonstrate for his listeners the fact that the worldly powers at the time viewed Christianity as a legitimate religion. In Luke 23, when Jesus is on trial, neither Pilate nor Herod can find any reason to crucify him. He's legitimate. In Acts 18, the Roman proconsul of Achaia, which is in what we call Greece now, um, Gallio, we talked about Gallio a couple months ago, Gallio offhandedly dismissed the Jewish accusations against Paul and the Christians, which set legal precedent throughout the Roman Empire for Christianity's legitimacy. He says, you know what, you, this is a Jewish problem, you guys deal with it yourselves. Which, in saying that, he said, because it's a Jewish problem, Christianity got lumped in with the Jews, so they were offered the same protection as the Jews. And that was legal, um, the legal status of Christianity at the time. Um, and here, Felix obviously sees the followers of the way as a legitimate offshoot of Judaism. Of course, by the time this passage wraps up, it's about 59 AD, and it's not very long until Christians would be hunted and persecuted as state policy under Nero. Um, Nero would blame uh, Christians for the fire in Rome that destroyed a city, and then from then on, it was fair game against Christians. That's when Christians started getting fed to the lions and stuff. Um, but for now, uh, for now, when Luke wrote his masterpieces, Christianity was absolutely seen as a legitimate belief system in the eyes of the worldly authorities around them. So long as they stayed to themselves and obeyed Roman rule and didn't cause any problems, then they were free to exist as they pleased. In this way, the church is like the Beastie Boys in 1989, getting support from those whose voices carry the most weight to lend them credibility and legitimacy. For quite some time in its early history, enemies of the church who sought to persecute Christians were doing so against the law of Rome, which we don't often think about, right? We think of Rome as hunting and persecuting Christians. But no, for, for decades, if you did that, Rome would persecute you. You weren't allowed to attack the Christians for no reason. This allowed the gospel to spread and grow and be better prepared for when the persecution inevitably did come. And it would come soon. But because they were safe for a time, they were made strong and they were ready for the persecution when it came. Speaking of persecution and legitimacy, one thing that frustrates me more than, than almost anything else about the state of the Western church in North America is how we've somehow created this martyrdom complex that has no basis in actual fact. Have you heard this? A lot of Christian leaders get up on their podium and, and proclaim that the world is against them that the government is coming for them, that the big bad liberals are coming for them, that whoever is coming for them. And we create this martyrdom complex among believers that everyone's out to get us, we're so persecuted, we're so hard done by, and it drives me absolutely insane. It's nonsense. The North American church remains one of the single most powerful institutions on this continent. And it's often used, the church has often used its sizable clout to formalize unbiblical legislation. Here's a couple examples that are happening right now. 
racist vote purging in the South, where if you happen to live in a predominantly African-American neighborhood, you're, it's increasingly difficult for you to get on the voter roll. And the Republican Party pushed this through, largely under the guidance of evangelical Christians, because those black people will vote in Democrats because they don't like Trump very much. So they make it harder for Trump to get kicked out. Now, regardless of what you believe about Trump, isn't that just a fundamental undermining of the democratic process? Shouldn't that rile up in us? There's, that's what they did in the 60s in Alabama. A, a black person would go to try to vote and they'd say, oh no, sorry, your address is wrong. You got to go over here. And they'd go over there and they'd say, oh no, sorry, you listed your weight incorrectly. You got to go over here. And they would just send the run, and then they couldn't vote. So they were, they had the right to vote, but they were barred from actually voting. That sounds terrible, right? It's happening now. It's happening right now. Or how about separating refugee children from parents and then forcing those children whose parents have done nothing wrong into adoption? It's state-sponsored kidnapping. And it's happening right now. These are policies being enacted by a government that was voted in by the political might of evangelical Christians. It's Christians who support these policies. And I cannot believe it's Christians who support these policies. What could be more unchristian than separating a child from his mother? From a mother... Okay, I'm getting riled up. So the church needs to just shut up about being persecuted in the West. We are not persecuted. We have all the rights and freedoms we've ever had. We have all the power. We have more power than we deserve or should ever have. And you know what we do with those power? We become the persecutors. We become responsible for those who persecute people we should be protecting. An African-American voter who's denied at the polling booth because she comes from a predominantly black neighborhood is injustice. That is fundamental injustice. A refugee mother fleeing drug violence in Guatemala who arrives claiming legal refugee status, but because she's brown, she's put in a cage, her child's ripped from her, and she may never see her child again. That should fundamentally rile us up as Christian people. Instead, it's Christians who are largely responsible for that garbage. Those are the people who can claim persecution. There's others that you could list. You could go on and on of times when the church of the West has been responsible for the persecution of others. Those are the people who can claim persecution, not the church. Those are the kind of things that Public Enemy, who I mentioned writing rap songs in 1988, those are the kinds of things that they wrote about to draw attention to. Those are the situations that the church of the West needs to beg forgiveness for, frankly. But there's more to this legitimacy thing. It's not just that the church gets legitimized in the eyes of the powers of the world. That's all fine and good as was the case for Paul in the Roman Empire of 57 AD, or the Church of the West in AD 2018. It's not just that the Church gets legitimized in the eyes of those in power. That's one thing. There's problems implicit with that sometimes, so it's its own thing. But there's a more beautiful message for us this morning, a message that Paul hints at, a message that takes me back to the Beastie Boys and MC Hammer. And I'm almost done. In the end, the thing that made Paul's boutique, that's, the album Paul's Boutique, and the things that made it a classic wasn't the fact that authoritative voices in rap like Chuck D declared the album and the artist to be legitimate. Just because somebody else says it's legitimate doesn't necessarily make it legitimate. It wasn't that critics have raved about it for 30 years now. That's not necessarily what made it legitimate. It's the fact that they crafted a really great piece of art that people really enjoyed. It's legitimate because people like it and bought it and supported it. 
For MC Hammer, he wasn't an illegitimate rapper just because other rappers thought he was corny. But he also wasn't a legitimate artist just because he 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 used to be respected by the hip hop community, or because he could dance really well in oversized parachute pants, or because he called his follow up album too legit to quit. Here's a note: just calling yourself too legit to quit doesn't necessarily make you too legit to quit. It actually is pretty cheesy and may rob you of some of your legitimacy standards. But that none of those things are what made him legit. No, what made MC Hammer a legitimate artist in the eyes of consumers for the last 30 years and for the next 50, 100 years into the future is the fact that we will still be dancing to You Can't Touch This at bar mitzvahs and wedding receptions and high school dances for as long as such things exist. It's just a great song to dance to. And so that's what makes it legitimate. Legitimacy is seen in the fruits of the work. What happened when that work was released? How did people respond? That's what makes it legitimate. An album that rap fans can appreciate a rap song that everyone loves to embarrass themselves by dancing to. And all these things, the legitimacy is in the results, not the opinions of those who are in power. The legitimacy is in the results, not the opinions of those who are in power. Paul is a fabulous example of this as well. I touched on verse 16 earlier, where he mentions keeping his conscience clean before God and man. That before man part sticks out to me though. Why would Paul care about having a clean conscience before men. Most of the men surrounding Paul that day couldn't care less about his clean conscience. They just wanted him dead. So why is it important that he has a clean conscience before these people? Why is Paul worried about having a clean conscience before mankind? Shouldn't it just be God? Well, it's because legitimacy is determined by the results. In the end, that blameless behavior gets results and changes lives. Our legitimacy can be found in what sets us apart. The hope of resurrection conquering death. The promise of grace in the coming judgment. The joy that cannot be extinguished no matter how the world rages. The compassion which welcomes the poor and the sick and the unprotected. The peace which surpasses present suffering. The kindness which sacrifices for the good of our enemies. The humility that admits mistakes and asks forgiveness. That sets us apart, but there's more. The creativity that sees God's goodness in sunsets and strangers alike. The power that dissolves hatred and devalues money. The integrity that never wavers no matter the temptation. The sexuality that offers faithfulness over emptiness. The community, you. The community that offers guidance and encouragement and value and truth instead of membership guidelines and self-righteous smugness. But there's more. I mean, there's many, many, many more things that set us apart and make us special and, and give us something to offer the world. But here's the biggest one then. There's the love. The love that radiates down to us and out from us and back up to where it came from. The love that transforms and redeems. The love which gives us new eyes for who he is and who our neighbor is. The love which shapes everything in the two sides I just showed you before and defines who we are and sets us apart as followers of the way of Jesus. That love, that love is what legitimizes us in the eyes of those around us. That love is what legitimizes us in the eyes of those around us. Not the opinion of the government, not what famous and influential people think of us, not what forceful acts of earthly power we wield to legislate our morality on others. Legislating morality just leads to immorality, as the law of God shows. The more we fight against the world, the more we demand that we be respected and listened to, 
the less legitimate we become. In the end, the only thing that will prove our movement is legitimate and convince others to join us and taste that legitimacy for themselves is our faithful devotion to our loving God. If we, like Paul, can present a reasonable explanation for our faith, supported by blameless living and big-hearted loving, then we will see the results. I believe that, and I believe that because that's what I see throughout Scripture. When we try to manhandle and force our way into power, it always blows up in the church's face. It always leads to corruption. When we attempt to become legitimate through legal proceedings, that only goes so far. That may, may offer us safety and protection, but it doesn't make our message any more or less true, does it? In the end, the only thing that will convince our neighbors who don't know about Jesus that Jesus is real and worth following, the only thing that will legitimize us in their eyes is love. The legitimacy, as with MC Hammer and BC Boys, the legitimacy is in the results. It's in the fruits of our love for God and love for neighbor. So the question for the day is, how legitimate is your faith? How legitimate is my faith? How legitimate is our impact on this community? And to be honest, I would say that Friday night, 63 kids here, that that's a pretty good, I think the community begins to see that we're doing good and that we have a legitimate thing to offer to our community. And that's not bragging. That's for the glory of God. That's, that's the only reason we exist is for that to happen. So how legitimate is our faith? Well, I'll tell you how legit it should be. It should be too legit, too legit to quit. Never quit, never quit doing those things which glorify God and get results for his kingdom. Let's pray. Father God, thank you. Thank you for this life that you've called us to and all the beautiful things that we are welcomed into that set us apart from the life we used to live and the life of the world around us. What what a blessing and a beautiful thing to be called into your life. And so I pray that we would um, be faithful in reflecting that life back to the world around us, not through demands or through pushiness or through um, belligerent arguments, but through love, and compassion, and joy, and, and peace, and hope, and all these other things that you gift to us to gift to the world around us. It is a beautiful life that you've called us to. And even in pain and suffering, we see your goodness for us, God. And we thank you for this life. We pray that we would be faithful to reflect this life back to, the, to our community around us, to our neighbors. Pray all these things in your name. Amen. Okay, I promise it will be many months before I talk about rap that much again, okay? You're off the hook for a long time. Next time, maybe I'll go to the other end of the spectrum and talk about, I don't know, Garth Brooks. Yeah, I don't know. Probably probably even Bill Galt could hum along. Yep, Bill knows it. If I played it right now, Bill will get up and he'd do his parachute pants dance. Too legit to quit.